you know, if, if a property manager in Dallas figures out something that flows through to every property manager, oh, this is something I might be able to do. So it's a collaborative effort to keep finding ways to save money. Everyone sees every potential cost savings that we get across everything. And what Steve says, not just property managers, we do this at the highest level for capital all the way down to every single employee. And so what it, again, it's, it's more about the culture than it is the things that you find. If it's in the culture, you're always going to find things. Right. There's always going to be new things. And so because we incentivize, the structure is set up for them to find those things. Not only do they find them, not just so they can make more money, they know that that is what success looks like at Ford. If we're trying to be the best real estate operator in the world. And what we found is every time we do find one of those things that's actually really impactful, it becomes a part of the process. So somebody else doesn't have to remember that. Right. That becomes built into our system to where that can't happen again. Welcome to the Ford Podcast. I'm Chris Powers. And on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. This episode is brought to you by none other than Juniper Square. In contrast to the disjointed systems used by the private markets today, Juniper Square allows GPs and their LPs to seamlessly connect and communicate across every stage of their partnerships. I was shocked when I saw that more than 1,800 GPs rely on Juniper Square to manage over 32,000 investment entities that span over 500,000 LPs and $700 billion in investor equity. Powered by industry-leading technology, Juniper Square connects the functions of a fund administrator with the day-to-day -day investor solutions and services every GP needs to succeed. Ford has been with Juniper. I'm pretty confident we were one of their first 10 customers over five years. We use them to manage and communicate uh, new deals, quarterly reporting, tax documents, distributions across over 800 investors, and they have made it so easy for us. I can't imagine running our business without them. They also just launched a great new podcast called The Distribution by Juniper Square. The Distribution by Juniper Square sits you down with some of the biggest names in commercial real estate, venture capital, and private equity for open and honest conversations about what's happening in the private markets. You can also listen to the episode I did with them, which is episode number six. Brandon and I had a great conversation. I also really enjoyed the episode that they did with Jason Kern, which I believe is episode number three. Go check out Juniper Square. They've been amazing for our company, and I think they will be for yours too. Go check them out online at junipersquare.com. I've been really loving this company, Better Pitch. They help you get your deck pitch perfect. Exhausted from splitting your time between graphic designing and securing funding for your next deal? Enter Better Pitch. From research to design, Better Pitch decks take the hassle out of creating your pitch deck so you can get back to building your business. Here's the cherry on top. Better Pitch is extending a risk-free offer to listeners of the Fort Podcast. They'll work with you until you're 100% satisfied no matter how many revisions you request. Ready to get the perfect pitch? If so, go to www.betterpitch.com to book a call today. I'm really impressed by our team at Fort Capital and the newsletter that we've created that we send out quarterly. Talks all about our real estate firm. It talks about our forward thinking and tech-focused culture. And this is really what we believe sets us apart from most real estate companies. 
We offer exclusive content from Fort Capital's economic strategist, information on the latest acquisitions and dispositions, our top performing podcast episodes, most recent content pieces. You can sign up for our newsletter at fortcapitallp.com. All right. Really excited about today. I've got Jason and Steve with me. Jason is my partner and our CEO, who you have heard from many times, and Steve is back. He's our executive vice president of property management. And today we're going to talk about how we execute property management at Fort Capital and through our subsidiary FCP. It's become a staple of our business, something that's critical to our success. And we really just want to share how we think about it, how we think we're improving this side of the business and, and what it means for investors and folks that work with us. So thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'll just start with how did we get into property management and why did we decide to get into it? It wasn't always something that we did. Right. Yeah. So several reasons, actually. You know, when you when you look at our our flywheel at Fort Capital, the center of that flywheel is to be the best real estate operator in the world. And so when we have goals that lofty, we're continuously improving, finding ways to get better, identifying areas that we can be more efficient. And property management was one of those areas. We we identified some gaps in some of the service that we felt like we could greatly improve on. So that was sort of the underlying reason. And then, you know, there's several ancillary benefits that come along with creating a new sort of business unit in property management. And the the thing that I'm, I would say, most excited about when I think about why we brought on property management and and the things we're able to do is growing the team. The 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 property management division, if you will, has been a tremendous vehicle in which we're able to grow our team. So it's been it's been great. I love it. Jason. Yeah. I mean just adding to that, Steve kind of hit on it. The the flywheel that helps us drive everything we do at Fort Capital, the the last bucket of that is economies of scale. And as you grow a company and you start to gain that economies of scale and you have the center of the flywheel being be the best real estate operator in the world, it's inevitable that you start to take on these other parts of your business. That's the only way you get better. You can't, you're not just going to get better by watching someone else do it or to hopefully manage someone else to be better, a third-party property manager. And so it, it was obvious. And I think we were chatting before this about how we, we tried to bring this aspect of our business in-house many years ago, actually, uh-huh. even before Steve joined us, Chris and I were just ambitious and probably <laughs> a little ahead of the curve there. But you realize that if you don't, if you're not ready as a company, you don't have the resources in place, you don't have the scale, going back to that economies of scale, if you don't have the scale, then what you're trying to do is force something into the business. You're trying to make something happen that you're, otherwise your business isn't ready for. And then what you end up doing is you're hiring people you don't have the resources in place, you don't have the technology in place, you don't have the platform in place, but you think you need to be a property manager. So it ends up costing you more money than you're actually making. And it doesn't take long before you look up and you you realize this is something we should be outsourcing. And that's what a lot of people do. They think, well, we should outsource all this. And for smaller businesses or smaller real estate firms that want to stay small and just focus on just the finding deals and investing side, that's great for them. But if you want to be the best real estate operator in the world, you got to operate, you got to operate the real estate. So fortunately we made the tough decision back then to cut bait and run. I think this was like 2016. This was early. And so we put that on the sidelines for a little while. We outsourced it. We started buying all the, the industrial real estate, 2016, 2017. We started to be able to watch how another third party property manager 
uh, managed our assets, including helping with the accounting side back then on just the asset level. And then we hired other property managers. So we had got the experience of testing out. I think at one point we had three or four property managers, third party, and we got the sense that, you know, how it worked, but also all the areas of improvement that we knew we could do better. And so once we got big enough and we had the scale and think this, there's some good things that did come out of COVID. One of them being that it, it forced us to really commit and go into property management at a more rapid pace. We were already doing it, but COVID one, the the time allowed us to do it because we, we obviously weren't buying a ton in those, in that moment when COVID started, but also we needed to take that in-house because we needed to improve our business in that moment, both for revenue, but also at the asset level, we had to control it. And so COVID ended up being a little bit of a blessing, but, but yeah, at the end of the day, it all boils back to our flywheel. It was inevitable. It just took us time to get there. And now we've been in property management for going on. What is it? Four years. Four years. Yeah. We had a portfolio that was of size so that we could start it profitably And as you guys know, like, and anybody listening to this, trying to run a property management business on a shoestring budget or on a losing budget is extremely painful. And we didn't have this in there, but I just thought I would ask, because I think a lot of people can relate to this. When we had three or four third-party property managers, what comes to mind is like some of the, the tough parts about having lots of property managers that just stands out immediately, where it's not all seamless. I would say for sure the inconsistency in the processes. So you're dealing with four different groups and those four different groups have four different ways of how they like to do things. And then additionally, the lack of data that you're getting from those four groups. You're getting a financial package every month that basically just says how the asset is doing, but you're you're really missing a, a, a massive opportunity when we're talking about getting to know the tenant base and getting to know the data behind the tenant. Yeah. And we'll get to data in a bit. What is the relationship between Fort Capital and FCP, just for clarification? Yeah, great question. So FCP is Fort Capital. It's one and the same. In fact, we've really invested the last, I would say, year and a half, two years of dedicating people on the team to ensure that FCP processes and Fort Capital processes are 100% aligned. So we have an amazing operations team, Andrea, Abby, Shana. We meet once a week for operations check-in to go through some things that we can improve on, process improvements, things of like that. But really the the main objective of that meeting is to ensure that we're not running in two different directions, right? We don't want to look up in five years and we have FCP doing all of this different stuff than Fort Capital. So very congruent, very aligned. And those meetings have helped a ton. Love it. All right. So some people think of property management is, you know, fixing broken things and creating maintenance and collecting rent. But what, what's been our philosophy and business plan around making sure that property management is more than that focused on tenant, re- tenant retention, tenant relationships and things of that nature? Yeah. So, you know, I tell people all the time, I think of our property managers truly as, as almost like asset managers. And that's that's mainly due to the level of which they're dialed into not only the financials and the asset performance, but the overall business plan of the asset. And so they're very, very dialed into what the strategy is and tenant retention is a big part of the game, right? That's the name of the game. We've got to retain tenants. And so one of the cool things that our technology team developed is we actually have a dashboard that any of the PMs, anyone in the company for that matter, can very quickly pull up and we can actually see what our expirations look like month after month after month, 18 months out. 
So if I'm a PM managing Manana Plaza, I can very quickly pull up, say, oh man, I've got three expirations coming up in August. We've got to get with the broker. Let's start strategizing now. And then we can sort of tag team that together through the PM and the and the broker. And how do we just ongoing, even when there's not a renewal or, or something coming up, what's our philosophy just on building great relationships with tenants? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's critical that our tenants know, you know, who we are and what we, what we're about. And it's, it's actions over time, but I guess I'm old fashioned, but I'm a firm believer in being present, right? So it's very difficult for us to build relationships with tenants over email and, and text and, and phone. It's, it's critical that the PMs are on site, walking their vacancies, popping in, being proactive, being helpful. I was actually in San Antonio a couple weeks ago and our property manager down there, Misty, it was, it was so reassuring and, and validating and it was great to see. We were walking an asset that we have down there and we were behind the building, sort of walking up and down the truck court, just kind of looking at things, identifying CapEx items that we were reviewing. And as we're walking down the truck court, literally like every bay that we walked by, like a tenant kind of popped out and, hey, Misty, how's it going? And she's like, hey, how are you doing? And and that's what it's all about. Because when we can develop those types of relationships, it makes those harder conversations so much easier. If if and when we have to have a tough conversation with a tenant, maybe something breaks in their, in their suite that is their responsibility and they just maybe weren't aware of it. Having the ability to have that conversation and them trusting you versus just getting some random email from a PM in an office that they don't ever even really know or have gotten to met yet. It's two totally different worlds. And that sounds like table stakes, but we found it with a lot of, you know, third party managers and you just see in general, they're, they're so busy doing other things. They forget to build relationships with with tenants. Can we just talk about like maybe some of the things we do that give our PMs the time to be on site and be relationships, maybe some of the work that other property managers would be doing that maybe other folks in the company at Ford are doing so that our property managers do have that time to be face to face. Yeah, absolutely. So we have, you know, we, we talk about our property management team and obviously you have property managers that make up that team, but it's so much more than that. So have a phenomenal lease administration team that handle 99% of the back end sort of yardy accounting onboarding. So the PM can use their time where it's most important. And that's taking care of the asset, taking care of the customer and collecting rent. So lease admin team has been just absolutely critical. And then our technology team, I'm, I'm probably going to talk a lot about technology today, but the efficiencies that the PMs have due to the technology that we've created in-house, things like asset performance review. So prior to having the asset performance review dashboards, it would take, I mean, days to dive into the financials and review and find out and what's going on. Now we can very quickly pull up a dashboard that has all of the notes, talks about why the revenue is up, why the expenses are down and what the overall effect is on the NOI. So anyone in the company can literally pull this dashboard up and go, oh, great. I see why the asset is doing what it's doing. This is this is awesome. So a lot of the, the process improvements that we've done, I've talked about the operations check-in. We've automated so many things through FOS. So for example, when we have property onboarding, there are jobs that automatically get launched to various departments all across the company and we have check-in meetings to make sure everyone's on the same page. Before before having all of those jobs automatically launch, it was very difficult to stay organized. And the PMs were spinning their wheels, quite frankly, on a lot of items that just we, we just had to do a better job getting organized on. 
Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about what happens before we buy and then what happens after we buy. I'll, I'll brag on the team, but we're notorious for the day we close. We're mobilized and ready. Closing isn't like the first time property management figures out they have something to work on. So maybe let's talk about how Fort and third-party clients that might be buying an asset, what happens with property management during, call it, once we know we're buying something to closing that gets property management ready for the day we take over? Yeah, great question. So the the minute that we have a deal that goes under contract, that initiates our investment strategy workflow. So in FOS, dozens and dozens of jobs get launched to the appropriate players on the team, transactions, property management, acquisitions, you name it. So we all get jobs that literally outline exactly what we need to do and what we're responsible for. I think where we're a little bit different is we involve the property managers very heavily in that acquisitions process. So to your point, they're not they're not trying to figure out what the asset is and what the tenant base is and what 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 does the rent roll look like the day after closing. It's this is all happening 30 60 days prior to closing. So we also involve our property managers in the tenant interview process. So that does two things. A, obviously lets them get to know the asset and the tenant and and really do some fact finding because the acquisition guys, they're going to be asking tenant interview questions completely different than the property manager is going to be asking, right? So the property manager wants to know, hey, what has there been any issues at the property that we need to be aware of? What do you like about your current property management team? What do you not like? Any, how do you like to be communicated with? So we're getting this valuable data, you know, 30 days before closing or so. And so once we physically close on the asset day one, it's not such of this like daunting, overwhelming task for the PM, like, oh my gosh, I've got to go meet all these people and I've got to figure out where it's at and where are the meters located. They we we've been doing all of that prior to close. Okay. And then closing day comes and, and maybe we could do the first 30 or the first 90 days. What happens the day we close? So day we close, day one, property manager on site and we are basically going suite to suite and we are shaking hands. We are passing out business cards. We have two primary objectives on day one. One is to make sure that we get in front of every single tenant. And if they're not in their space, we have a contact list. We're texting, we're calling, we're emailing. Ideally, we're face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball with every single tenant. That's objective one. Objective two is to make sure that the new or that the tenants understand that we're the new property management company. This is who to contact. And this is how you now pay rent. So that's critical, obviously. We want to make sure that the tenants, and, and most of the tenants, that's their number one question. So, okay, well, well who who do I call to send my, my payment to? And, and so we get that lined out on day one. While the PM is on site, what is simultaneously happening, again, automatically being triggered, we're sending automatic tenant portal invites out that goes directly to their tenant's email. And we're also automatically sending out welcome letters to every single tenant. So, while the PM is reinforcing all of these things face-to-face, they're also getting backup documentation that tell them, this is how you sign up for online portal payments. These are the items that we're going to need from you. Things like an updated certificate of insurance. This is the PM contact info. So they have all that. So from the tenant perspective, that's that's kind of day one. Then there's also the vendor and trade partner perspective. So we're meeting with all the vendors and service contract providers on site, making sure that we get them signed up on our contract making sure that they understand the scope, vetting them. Oftentimes, it's a great opportunity for a cost saving. So when we acquire, there's oftentimes where, oh man, this landscaper, this contract looks really, really high. So it's a great opportunity to immediately come in 
and start and start cost savings at the asset level. And then the third component of that first 30 days, to your point of hit the ground running, we have 99% of the time we close on an asset, we have a pretty thorough CapEx plan. And that CapEx plan has been discussed and the PM's been in the meetings and we everyone is aligned on what we're doing, how we're doing it. And so it's really meeting with those contractors, meeting with the city, getting permits in place. And so that way we can kick off those CapEx plans right away. You said kind of two things. You said paying online, which is important. And we ran a huge initiative last year. Forgive me the the name of the. Yeah, that was uh, Operation Paperless. And and we talked about it at year end, but Oper- Operation Paperless. Can you just describe like why that came to be and, and why it has been so critical in executing that? Yeah. So, so Operation Paperless was an initiative that we came up with last year. A couple reasons. One, we, we started to see just the lack of efficiency on whether it be U.S. Postal Service or, or FedEx or just mail in general. We had tenants that were mailing their check on the first of the month and it wouldn't get to us until sometimes the 15th, the 16th, the 17th of the month. So we've got a tenant saying, that's not fair. I paid. You know, I shouldn't be charged a late fee. And we're saying, but we don't have that money yet. And so there was a little bit of friction there. And then additionally, from an accounting perspective, it was, we, I was speaking with our director of accounting and she was letting me know that every time that we have to process a check, it's a multiple step process. If they just, if the tenants would just pay online, it was so much easier for the accounting team because it would sort of automatically book that revenue as, as, as incoming. And so I'm like, wow, what, this is a great opportunity to, to, speed up some of our process here. So uh, we made the decision to basically say we are no longer accepting paper checks right now. Or cash. Or yeah, or cash. So we're over at 97% of our customer base, our tenants are paying via the portal online. We we have a few folks due to corporate policies that they, they just physically don't allow them to pay on the portal. But you know, this time two years ago, that number was probably you know 30%. And back to just property managers having time to build relationships with tenants and be on site, we cleared the issue of, we found out that property managers are spending two to three weeks a month gathering up, hunting right. down checks. And yeah. now all that time is given back to them. Well, if you just think about the world we live in, we would talk about technology <clears throat> in every meeting that we have, every podcast we do, we talk about technology. And yet we're still, on the other hand, talking about making a phone call on the sixth of the month to hear on the other end of the line, the checks in the mail. Yeah. Right. When we're talking about things like cryptocurrencies that exist in the world today. <laughs> and so the contrast between this asset class and the reality of what exists in the world is just night and day. And so you, when you look at that, you could say, well, that's horrible. That's a bad asset class. Let's not, but that's a huge opportunity because most of this asset class is still managed that way. They still allow the tenants to do that. And, and this might be an easy answer, but I get asked it often. People will just say, you know, well, we have tenants that just say they won't do it or we can't, like, how do y'all get people to do it? And the answer might just be, that's just policy and that's what it is. But, but how do we get people to do it that would otherwise be hesitant? So a lot of it is just explaining the why and explaining the benefit to the tenant. So anytime we get pushback from a tenant, that's like, oh, I don't want to do that. Or that's not fair. It's like, first thing we do is, Hey, let's look up. I want to see the history of this tenant's payment, payment history to see if they've been ever been charged a late fee. 99% of the time they have. So it's like, look, if you will get on the portal and get on a reoccurring payment process, you will never pay a late fee again. So one, it's just explaining the benefit to them. And also too, most most tenants, if you just explain 
the the benefit on our end too. It's like, look, man, if you can just pay on the portal, it it just makes a lot of people's life easier. We would really appreciate it. The overwhelming majority are going to be like, oh, okay, cool, no problem. Yeah, and if you think about going back to where the world is today, all these people have iPhones, smartphones. Everybody already lives in that world. So it's not like they won't. They just need somebody to help walk them through it. What hasn't happened on the other end is the previous ownership doesn't have technology set up. So it's actually easier for them to just go, we'll just collect checks, right? And so all it is is a function of just nobody taking the big step of moving into that direction. But going back to what we were talking about earlier from how do you communicate with these tenants or show them that we care differently than the previous owner. What Steve was saying, day one, when we go out there and meet with them, or even starting 30 days back, we're building commonality and rapport and trust, what Steve was mentioning. All those things matter when you start to have these conversations. So when you do start day one, that communication and how that property manager treats that tenant, the first thing we got to do is ask them to change. That's the first thing. Almost in every case, we're saying you got to change. So you, the only way that they feel comfortable to do that is if they trust the person asking them to change. And so if you start thinking about this from a psychology level, this is no different than what we're training our internal team to do to communicate with each other or a manager to manage a team, right? This is all, how do you build commonality? How do you build trust? How do you build rapport? How do you communicate with your team? We're passing that down from the executive team to managers. So those managers can go out in the real world and treat the tenants the same way. Yeah, it seems like building a relationship with a tenant would be important. They're often three to five year leases. We're often their second largest payment every month. I mean, we're we're very much connected, and so you can either be the enemy or you can be the partner. And, and it and, it, and I think it would just shock a lot of people how little emphasis is put on that relationship at, at a lot of other places. The other thing you said was cost savings. We've talked about economies of scale. You talked about vendors. You know, again, one of the beauties of of what we have at Fort between the nearly 7 million square feet that we're managing of our own and, you know, a million and a half square feet of third parties with another million coming on board is we do have economies of scale. Can you just give a little more insight into what we're capable of doing on the cost saving side, which obviously flows through to the investor? It creates value across the board because I think that's really important. If you're working with a property manager that doesn't have economies of scale or doesn't have negotiating bargaining power, you're going to be paying inflated expenses. How do we continue to find ways to save money? Yeah, great question. And that is something we're really passionate about is is, as far as the cost savings goes, it's it's truly ingrained into every team member's just core, no pun intended. So we we have an acronym that we use called CORE, C-O-R, stands for cost savings, overhead management, and revenue generation. That is something that we actually have a dashboard for. So we talked about technology. So every per not just PMs, every person on the team, anytime they save money doing anything, they input that cost savings into the cost savings tracker and FOS. And we review that as a team monthly. So we can slice that data any way we want. I can look at it by asset. I can look at it by property manager. I can look at it by non-property manager and, and how much money we've truly saved. The property managers just due to the nature of their business, they have the most opportunity to save money because they're constantly dealing with vendors and contractors and trades. And so we have a, a, a great story that we we had in Houston. Kelly, one of our property managers, we had an asset that we had closed on in the city of Stafford. And we didn't realize this, didn't know this, but 
Apparently, Stafford has a, a, a law that says any new building that's transacted upon needs to be brought up to current fire code, meaning if it's not sprinkled, you need to install fire suppression, which is just hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? Very cost prohibitive, right? We certainly didn't underwrite to go add fire suppression into a, a, a building that was built in, you know, 1988, right? Yeah. Well, we, we, we had two options there. Kelly could have just said, hey, Steve got some bad news. I'm going to go get some bids on fire suppression. But she l- just fought tooth and nail with the city and the fire marshal and that entire team was just like, guys, what you're asking seems a little unreasonable. We've already agreed that we're going to install a fire alarm system, but the fire suppression system, the bids we were getting were in excess of $400,000. And the conversations, this took months and months and months. And finally, the fire marshal agreed that if we would install the fire alarm and then have a monthly proactive inspection to ensure that the tenants weren't storing things they shouldn't be storing in, then he would waive the requirement. And so just that owner's mindset that she had to do that saved the asset $400,000. And there's stories like that every day, literally every day, where we are putting the the onus on the PM to think like an owner. And the way we do that is we incentivize every single property manager based on asset performance. So if the asset is outperforming what we said it was going to do, the property manager reaps those benefits. And we bonus our PMs on the the overall health of the asset. Excuse me, and a lot of that is cost savings. And I have to imagine that cost savings tracker and the meeting that you have, you know, if, if a property manager in Dallas figures out something, that flows through to every property manager. Oh, this is something I might be able to do. So it's a collaborative effort to keep finding ways to save money. Everyone sees every potential cost savings that we get across everything. And what Steve says, not just property managers, we do this at the highest level for capital all the way down to every single employee. And so what it, again, it's, it's more about the culture than it is the things that you find. If it's in the culture, you're always going to find things. Right. There's always going to be new things. And so because we incentivize, the structure is set up for them to find those things. Not only do they find them, not just so they can make more money, they know that that is what success looks like at Ford. If we're trying to be the best real estate operator in the world, and what we found is every time we do find one of those things that's actually really impactful, it becomes a part of the process. So somebody else doesn't have to remember that. Right. That becomes built into our system to where that can't happen again. Or we have a path to to be able to look for that opportunity in the future. So now when we go underwrite a deal, let's say we go underwrite a deal in the future that we have discovered a way to save money that other people haven't, we can obviously look at it different than other people because they just underwrite that as a cost. So we have over 1,700 tenants. One of the ways we create value is converting gross leases to triple net leases. So I guess the, the, the first question is just kind of how do we go about doing that? We inherit leases when we buy a deal. How do we eventually convert them from gross to triple net? So I, a lot of it is, is literally just communication and education. It's, it's you know, we have, we have a standard form lease that it is a triple net lease. And so when it's renewal time and we're going to a tenant that's been traditionally on a gross lease, it's educating them on why the triple net lease is so important. So from our view, you know, obviously from the landlord view, the tenant is basically sharing in the his fair share, her fair share of the expenses, the taxes, the insurance, and the CAM. But but it also, if if we know that the tenant is now going to be A, responsible for 99% of the items in their space, and they're going to be participating in 
the the expenses, they're going to be more likely to take pride in the space, take care of the space, and help us identify ways that we could potentially save money. There's there's tenants all the time that'll go, hey, have you guys, did you guys know that there's a truck that comes by here at night and he was dumping illegally? I I put up a camera and I got his license plate number. Because they know that we have to pay to pick those things up and ultimately that cost gets passed down to them. So they're more inclined to speak up when they also see opportunities. How do we collect for triple nets? So basically we just bill the each month when we bill for rent. So they it's based on their pro rata share and the the actual triple nets are based on our annual budget. And so we just let the tenants know that remember these are estimates, right? So we got them pretty dialed in. And every month they get billed a line item for base rent and then tax insurance and CAM based on their square footage. Got it. Same as rent. We talked about CapEx in the first 30 days. How do we think about TI for the tenants? What what matters? Yeah. So when when I think of TI, I think of truly a a win-win-win-win scenario. What I mean by that is so when we're when we're choosing to do TI at an asset, we are adding value to the asset. So there's there's a win for the asset. We are basically taking a new tenant and letting them customize their space or beautify their space. So it's a win for the tenant. FCP, one of the other components that our property managers do is they manage all of the construction in-house. So all of that TI is managed by the PM and we charge a fee for that. So FCP for capital, it's a win for us. And then lastly, a lot of our relationships with great trade partners and vendors we're giving them more work. And so they're very appreciative of that. And so it's a win for our partners as well. So yeah, we, we, we love TI. Okay. This is a question that I think gets asked a lot, whether it's industrial or anytime, but where do you draw the line between appeasing a tenant versus taking care of something that you could probably point to the lease and say, that's not our problem or check the lease? Great, great question. And it's, it's a, it's a slippery slope, right? Because we have, Remember, most of our most of our parks are multi-tenant and we may have a park with 30, 40, 50, 60 tenants. And if we're not careful and, you know, the, the initial P, the initial thought of the PM is we want to be super helpful. We can be helpful while sticking to the lease terms. Right. So I think one of the worst things we could do is going outside of that lease agreement because we want to be a nice guy or a nice person and help the tenant. But then what if that tenant is like okay well he he goes to his neighbor and says hey they they fixed my my plumbing issue and then you you sort of start to it's multiply that out and it it just it can get out of hand however i do think that it to your point of just getting an email and saying hey that's your responsibility check your lease so what we train our pms is whenever we can be helpful let's do so and so hey chris i saw that you said you had a plumbing issue Unfortunately, we did take a look at the lease and you are responsible for it. However, we have a great plumber that actually handles all of our plumbing work at this asset. He usually gives us a great rate. I'd be more than happy to make that introduction, send you his contact info. That way you could go through him directly and get that taken care of. That's two totally different conversations. It's, hey, not my problem, or hey, you're actually responsible for it, but let me at least connect you to the guy that can that can help you, if that makes sense. I love it. On that note, it's really been, I think, began last year, and, and this is now starting to grow, but we're starting to bring maintenance technicians in-house. So when we first launched, we didn't. What is, what's the reason to bring maintenance technicians in-house, and what's the value that they provide to our property management business? 
Yeah. So the maintenance tech is, is another core initiative. And, and in my opinion, it checks all three sort of cost reduction, overhead management and revenue generation. So we, again, got to uh, a size, economies of scale to where we could bring someone in-house and self-perform work that is going to be an overall cost savings to the asset. And so what I mean by that is, you know, again, beauty of the triple net lease is that the tenants are responsible for the, for the majority of the items, but there's still some common area things like, so let's say a fence got damaged and blew down. Well, before having a maintenance tech in-house, let's go get three bids with three different fence companies. Let's do a bid comparison analysis and then, okay, let's pick this fence company. They'll come out, they'll fix it. Asset gets charged three grand. Okay, great. Well, now with the maintenance tech, I can we can self-perform that work. So we're getting it done faster. We're getting it done way cheaper. And back to the original point of how do our PMs, you know, create efficiencies? Well, they're not dealing with a fence time. company, you know, getting three bids and all that. So it's been it's been great. And we actually have today is another maintenance tech's first day. We just hired one in Houston. So we've got one in DFW and now one in Houston. And it just, it goes, what he mentioned, it goes back to economies of scale. Those are, that's no different than getting in property management. There will, there's, there will continue to be ways that we can add value to the asset that also add value to us becoming the best real estate operator in the world. And this is an example of that. Just keep finding ways to keep improving and that inevitably adds value to the asset. Okay. We've, we've kind of covered a lot about, about how we do it. All this work is generating data. Let's talk about the data that generates. Some of it can be the obvious stuff, but what's some of the maybe intangibles or some of the things that we get to experience that we would never otherwise be able to without in-house property management? Yeah, yeah so my mind immediately goes to the the specific uses for from the tenant perspective. So we know that tenant A is in this space. By managing that asset in-house and not ex- exporting the third-party management services, I know how many employees that that tenant has on site. I know how goods and services are distributed out of that warehouse from that tenant. I know how many times that tenant has reached out to us for a maintenance service request. I can look at the maintenance service request. I can dice that data a hundred different ways. I can. I know exactly what the 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 tenant's renewal coming up. We we have all of that in house, and all of these items are on dashboards. And then, not to mention, obviously, all of the all of the financial data. So yeah, it allows us to what's to continue with what Steve was saying is you if you take all that data and it, there's way more than that that we can see at the asset level from a tenant perspective, you can compare that against all the other assets we own. So we can see exactly how many of X type of tenant we have across the entire portfolio. We can see if we have the same tenant in multiple buildings. We can see if a tenant usually pays their rent on the fifth every single month like clockwork and all of a sudden it started to come in on the seventh. Right. What does that mean? Right. You just start to see trends that otherwise you wouldn't be able to see. And and you can a lot of people think, well, I could ask that of my third party manager. But going back to what Steve was saying earlier, if you have other people, multiple people keeping that data for you, you're going to get it in different formats and some are going to get it and some aren't. Some are going to get it well and some aren't. But the real key is where does that data go? Where does it live and how do you can ingest that data consistently over time? So you can start to build those trends and those visuals to be able to see this is what our portfolio is. This is what it looks like. This is how you can think about it. And this is where the opportunity is. So we've started to look at it from a leasing perspective to say, where are there gaps, right? In vacancy or occupancy, right? And where do we have tenants that are expanding and that need more space 
and where might they fit into our portfolio and what options can we give them, right? So you start taking it from a property management perspective and a cost savings perspective and all those things and start looking at how do you start to create value to the asset and to the tenant, right? So when they start looking for more space, instead of saying, just go out in the market and see what's there, we can be proactive and say, ask them ahead of time. Hey, if y'all think about expanding, let us know because we have space for you. And there's also value in in it being real-time data. If you're using 100%. a lot of times data can lag or it's, you know, what was relevant by the time you get it is no longer relevant. Our data is real-time. Real-time, day-to-day on the spot so that we can make decisions. Let's just kind of take this a step further. Because we have this data, we're obviously buying new deals and underwriting new deals. How does data from property management flow through to how we underwrite new opportunities? And then what is the property management's team's role in when we're underwriting new opportunities? Because I think in a lot of companies, property management doesn't really participate in the should we do this deal or should we not? Right. I'll let Steve can jump on the the aspect of property management has a huge hand in us confirming the cost and the money that we need up front and ongoing to manage the asset. But but we do a lot of things in the underwriting up front where we take into account the trends of what is happening across the asset. So a lot of investors, they just start going and you know how we joke all the time, everything is up and to the right, no matter how you underwrite. It's always going to keep going up. But what we do is we look at what's really happening and say, okay, rents were increasing at X percent per month. Now they're starting to increase at X and we can dial that back. We can also say, this is what we projected vacancy at before. This is how our portfolio is actually running. When you get to economies of scale, you can take your own data. You don't have to just rely on CoStar or LoopNet and and hope that everything they entered gives you the tools you need to make a good decision. You have real world data of your own. No, nobody's data can beat your own data, your real hard facts, like you said, that's real time. Yep. And so we use that. And and one way that we do that more consistently now is we have started to reforecast our assets on a monthly basis. And this is something new for us because we we re- report to investors quarterly. We distribute monthly, but we report quarterly, right? So we we give asset high-level updates quarterly. But what we realize is that if we start doing a full reforecast every single month, and that's across every asset, every MLA, which means we're going through all the leasing and saying, this is what we thought was going to happen. This is what's actually happened. This is now what we think is going to happen, right? Forget the original performa. Now we're in real-world time saying, we thought we were going to lease this at $10. We released it at 11 Therefore, the next three leases, should we adjust those right across every asset? And that sounds minor, but if you do that every month, your view of what's possible and what's going to happen changes drastically as opposed to looking that in, in longer periods. And so that's how we use it on the upfront underwriting. And then when it comes to the actual understanding the cost of the assets, Steve and the team going back 30 days prior, that's where they jump in and I'll let you take it from there. Yeah. I mean, obviously the PMs have had just that real-time knowledge of what what's happening from a cost perspective. Are we are we getting price increases from suppliers or vendors? If so, did we account for that going back to the the underwriting team and letting them know that, hey man, we're we're kind of getting squeezed on X, Y, and Z. We need to boost this up. Or, you know, alternatively, hey, and we've done an outstanding job leveraging some of these relationships and and due to our scale and our purchasing power, we we can maybe back some of this down a little bit. So just having those real-time conversations. And then what he mentioned earlier about the 30-day prior when those jobs get kicked off, part of the jobs that the property managers get, specifically Steve, is to tour the asset, 
and get real feedback so that we start creating that budget 30 days in advance of what the asset actually needs, like truly what it needs. So instead of saying, hey, we think, you know, we we looked at Google Earth, it looks like it might need a new roof. The owner's saying the roof's good for another 10 years. We looked at the parking lot, it's all right. Instead of just taking that high level approach and throwing a bucket of money in there and saying, I think 500 grand is going to cover it. Yeah. We dial in a detailed budget before we ever even get to our money going hard to where we know exactly that capex upfront capex and ti dollar what it's going to be and the property management team has vetted all that so instead of relying on the investment team which a lot of groups do the property management team's not even brought in till closing and the investment team is the one or deal team acquisition guys are the ones throwing those estimates out there or they're they're sending an email to their property manager and saying, hey, these guys are saying that we need a new roof. What's a new roof? Seven bucks a foot. Is that about right? If I put seven, am I good? Yeah, you're probably good. As opposed to actually going and doing the work and saying, what is this going to cost us to, to when we take over this asset? What are we going to run into? So we've gotten really good at dialing in those budgets ahead of time. And on the discussion of real time, if you look at multifamily, there's software that allows them to almost price units by the hour. Yeah, uh, the, the hotel industry at price by the hour. A lot of the assets that we've bought, part of the reason they're under value is maybe it's an out-of-state owner, they're disconnected from property management leasing, and they've kept leasing rates the same for sometimes years without knowing the market. How does our property management team and how does our company adjust leasing rates kind of as we go? I mean, at times we can move a rate in a week or a month. Mm-hmm. How, how, does that, how does that flow through the company? So what's done through our real-time data. So we're, because we have 1700 tenants now and we can track what's happening in the market every time. And, and again, it's different than multifamily, multifamily and hotel have that ability to have the commonality of pricing and movement because they have a definitive time at which those leases change multifamily. Every lease changes every 12 or 13 months. Now I know most of them are 13 months now or shorter, right? Very rarely is there a different timeline so they can everything's on a same cycle. In hotel, it's easy. It's nightly, right? It's easy to price that stuff. Vacancy, what's there? They can do it. In, in industrial, every lease is different. You might have a one-year lease, a three-year lease, a two-year lease, triple net, not triple net. We pay the, there's too many dynamics, right? So there's there's no commonality or structure there that allows you to price it. So what we have to do is we have to track the market of what's happening real time for us. And what we try to do is say, this is the demand. How many tenants are coming to the door? How much did we underwrite? And if there's more tenants coming to the door than what we underwrite, then that means the price is too low. Yep. That's all there is. And so if our occupancy is high, then the price needs to go up because there's too much demand for the price that we have. And you find the the equilibrium there. That's what every market does, right? And industrial has been on this run for a while where the the rents have been rising at a pace that seems unsustainable. And it is, it can't be sustainable forever, but what it's still trying to find is its equilibrium to demand. And so that's all it is about. And so since we have enough scale, economies of scale now, we can track our own equilibrium, our own price discovery through supply and demand. And our portfolio, if you take out some one-off buildings that we've owned for a long time and you just look at the core industrial that we've owned over the last three or four years, we probably run in that 90 to 94% range, depending on the asset. Some are 100%, some are a little less, depending on how long we've owned them or what our plan is. But we track that very closely of the overall occupancy percentage and also at the individual asset level. And what we're trying to watch is for any change in that growth pace, right? So 
rent can be slowing down in terms of growth, but what is the demand? Is it still coming at that pace? And we track both of those very closely to make sure we keep the buildings full. Because at the end of the day, that's the game. Okay, we're going to move into talking about leasing for a second. But there's one thing you said at the beginning that I had a note on when we were talking about property managers. And you said, you know, our lease admin team takes on a lot of the work that they would traditionally do. Can you just explain what a lease admin team does and like what their functions are and why they've been so valuable to property management? Yeah, absolutely. So our lease admin team, so when we get a, let's say we sign a new lease, right? So they do all of the back-end work on getting that lease uploaded into Yardi, confirming that we have all of the rent calculations in correctly to make sure we're charging the tenant appropriately. They also help with a variety of leases. So we have an in-house leasing team. The lease admin team provides different metrics and studies on our sub-markets that we're currently in-house leasing in. So we can very quickly, back to the data thing, we can very quickly identify that, oh, this sub-market, the overall occupancy in this sub-market is 84%. We're at 88%. Great. That, we're, we're doing a great job there. They are hugely valuable on initial budget creation. So when we acquire an asset, all of the jobs that get automatically launched, one of those jobs goes directly to the lease administration team and they create the year one budget for that asset because it's it's essentially the, the year one underwriting. But instead of having the PM sort of have to get into the weeds and creating that first initial budget, the lease admin team spits that out typically the day of close. So we've closed on the asset or or even even sooner, we've closed on the asset and the PM and team already have a budget to reference. So that's been a, a huge time saving. And just give a little context to this. We've bought some deals that have hundreds of tenants in them when we close. Just the gravity of like actually getting the information correctly into Yardi. How, how big of an undertaking is that? And how might other companies do it? And we do it differently. Yeah. So great question. So we, I'll, I'll pick an asset that we closed on a couple of years ago, and then I'll compare it to an asset that we just recently closed on. So a couple of years ago, we closed on an asset in Houston that had over a hundred tenants. Okay. So that took the lease administration team almost three weeks to get all of the tenants uploaded. Uh, like you're, so we're, and we're, when we're saying onboarded, we have two things. We have one, we have FOS, which is our internal operating system. So tenant contact information, lease type, all of the data there, and then also in Yardi. So they were inputting the data twice. So once in FOS, once in Yardi, took three weeks. Very painful process. The deal that we recently closed on, Spring Valley Tech, with 45 tenants, so not quite 100, but 45 tenants is nothing to sneeze at. And I think they said it took them six hours. <laughs> so we've identified a way to use ETL uploads so that way the data is only being entered one time. So they shaved off, you know. And it's and it's imported, not manually input. Right. So there's way less actual manual process. There's always some, but there's way less than there's ever been. And, and the one other thing that the lease admin team does do, I'll just add to that because I think it's, it's going to be critical in the future, but they really do support the lease team, the leasing team. So there's an onboarding aspect that it relieves the property manager, but there's an ongoing aspect to where as new leases come in, because remember, we keep getting leases forever and they're part of that team where they ingest those leases, but they're also able to analyze those leases. So when you talk about how do we know all the things that we just talked about, those trends and that analysis is handled by the lease admin team. So they're the ones that are managing those reports and those dashboards to be able to give those leasing teams and us on the investment team what's happening. So they're, they're a critical component of that. They work like analysts. Okay. 
we mentioned leasing, we mentioned in-house leasing and kind of like the question we started with, why did we decide to get into property management? Why did we decide to get into in-house leasing? Well, so w- again, due to due to the scale that that we've achieved, we saw a tremendous opportunity from just a revenue generation standpoint. So again, going back to core, the three sort of components of core, we've got the R, the revenue generation. We initially kicked this off in Houston, which is where the largest amount of our portfolio resides is in Houston. And so we have two in-house leasing managers and they've done a fabulous job so far. We're, the plan is to take this to obviously DFW and San Antonio as well. But it was just such a massive opportunity to grow the revenue stream. And then also, again, going back to data, it's it's now we're now we're directly working with prospects. So the data that we're collecting from that front that we otherwise normally wouldn't wouldn't get, now that's flowing into our system. And it ties into the ownership mindset. I mean, it's the same thing as property management at some point. You realize we have great leasing teams out there that work for us that do an amazing job. And there's some that are way better than us right now. And that's why we picked to we still choose to use those partners in those markets. But there's some markets or some sub-markets or asset classes where we were already doing a lot of the heavy lifting from either the property management side or lease admin side or something where we were basically doing the leasing in-house without actually having any leasing people where a lot of the people would call us direct or the property manager would know something. And it was those assets where we started to test same thing we did in property management. We start slowly and see we're only going to do this where we know we would be more successful than our other option in the market. So we're at the end of the day, it all starts with we're not going to try to create revenue if we can't add asset value to the asset, right? Because there's our goal isn't to just win. We're an investor in the deals also. We need the asset to win. And so we we look for opportunity where the asset can outperform if we do the leasing. Yeah. And what we found is because of how dialed in our processes are, our systems, our technology, is that as we start to take properties on in-house, we can manage them better from a leasing perspective. We can see things better from a leasing perspective. And so we believe that this will turn out just like our property management business where it will not be very long until we are much better at leasing our own properties than anyone else. It doesn't mean that we are going to be better at leasing someone else's properties today, but we for sure will be better at leasing our own because of one, the owner mindset, but all the data we have internally, the fact that we can communicate property managers and leasing team directly, they work as basically one team. Leasing actually flows under property management because they technically are one team. They are at the asset level. And so we believe there's a lot of synergy and a lot of value to the asset, the investor, to us as a, as, as operating company for the future. And so we're just getting started. And can you just expand a little bit? I think one of the observations we had over time, and as we continue to learn more about the asset class, as the deals we were buying that had smaller suite sizes, and you said we were doing kind of a lot of the work, a lot of those tenants weren't represented in the market by tenant rep brokers. Right. They weren't out in the market a year in advance looking for spaces. It was almost like multifamily. They're kind of walking in. What do you got? Can you just expand a little bit more on just kind of what we identified and, and how we look at assets where the smaller the tenant, maybe it's a little more inefficient. And that did provide a huge opportunity for us to do the leasing rather than maybe some of the misalignment you have with hiring third parties on small properties that either aren't as incentivized to lease them because they're small commissions. But you that you nailed it. That's that's what it is, is that the commissions are not huge on 1,200 square feet. If you're signing one-year, two-year, even three-year leases, we're not talking about large sums of money. What you're talking about is volume, right? right? And so if you're a big brokerage firm that has great leasing 
people that have been successful in the business a long time, it's not a secret that those successful people have moved on to bigger and better things and they're not interested in representing a uh, 500, 1200 square foot spaces. Yeah, It's not a sexy business to be in. It's a lot of hard work. Now you're always going to get a junior guy or a junior girl, somebody that's kind of up and coming to do that. What we have found is the value is because we have all the tools and resources in-house, we can incentivize and we can create paths for people to have more success than otherwise they could if they were just a broker in the outside world. Being a broker and working for an owner because we don't, we're, they're not brokers for us. They're our leasing team. But being an in-house leasing manager or director is way different than being a broker on a firm, right? It's a totally different thing. We have a built-in business. They don't have to go find tenants. They don't have to go find clients. They don't have to do tenant rep. They have a built-in business path and we can create that for them. And because of our economies of scale, we can create amazing opportunities for people in the market to have a built-in, essentially an annuity stream because they're always going to have leasing. Every right. lease we have is one to three years. And if you have 1,700, which will soon be 3,000, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for a long time. And so we can continue to build on that. Okay. We, we, I think we've kind of touched on this, but to just kind of tie it up, we have in-house, we have an in-house team. We have data generation. How does the, how does leasing look at all the data that comes in? And, and, and we've kind of already hit on it, but to bring it home, like how does our leasing team communicate and use the data that we're bringing in? It, it's synonymous. Yeah, so it's synonymous. And again, going back to tech and, and and dashboard. So we have a phenomenal tool that the in-house leasing team uses called our leasing activity dashboard. And on that dashboard, there's so much data. There's, again, we can look at how many spaces do we have that are expiring. So we have all of our expirations. We can look at the actual activity that's happening on the spaces in real time. So as our leasing managers are getting feedback from prospects, they're entering their notes into the system. So our director of leasing, myself, Jason, anybody can literally pull up this dashboard and quickly see like, oh, great. We had four tours this week at this asset. So what, you know, what, what are we doing to, to get those across the finish line? So and it, it, within that dashboard, it has, what did we underwrite for the rate? What do we expect the rate that we're going to get? So Again, it's just having the data at, at our fingertips at all times. It's massive. And being able to sort that data. So the, the really, if you go back to how we run our whole company in terms of flywheel and goal setting is through OKRs, right? And so it's no different when you're looking at leasing. You got to know what to focus your attention on. And if you're a leasing team, the way they use the data is knowing what to focus on. We've got assets that are 100% occupied. So should we spend our leasing meeting time talking about the asset for an hour that's crushing it, you're going to talk about it, but you don't. You need to spend most of your time focused on the assets where you need attention, where there's vacancy that's been there too long. Or let's just say a third-party person had been leasing it and there's a space that has been vacant for two months and you look at the activity on that and say, there's been no activity. So what is the number one thing we should do? We got to get some activity in that space. It's very easy to then bring that right to the top of the focus point and you know how to set your goals for the next week or the next quarter. And so what, what the data and that information that the lease admins are collecting every month and what the property management team feedback gives them, when you compile that data, the leasing team, they can be, they can hold themselves accountable, right? You don't need a manager out there holding them accountable. Like, why isn't this space lease? It's very transparent, very obvious. So when the leasing team meets every week, they're able to focus on the things that are most important. And, and we've talked about in-house leasing, but just, just touch on third-party leasing for a little bit. 
I think we've done a, a remarkable job of holding third-party leasing teams accountable. Again, something you see in this right. asset class where the owner can be very distant from the leasing team. The leasing team isn't required to provide regular updates of what's going on. You mentioned, you know, in, when we're doing in-house, we might know there was four tours that week. If it's a third party, sometimes you have no idea there was four tours that week. That would have been good to know. Maybe just a couple of the things that we do, not with our in-house team, but our third-party teams to make it as aligned as possible as almost as if they were in-house. Yeah, it's it's having the right staff internally. So we've always had, and we've talked about this position a lot, our director of leasing internally, before we were doing any internal leasing, only manage third-party external leasing. So we have somebody dedicated that does nothing but manage those relationships. And that person is very hand-selected to be the right type of person that can manage those third-party relationships. And so we have a we have an ownership requirement for the third-party leasing managers where they're held to a high standard where we have to get at least the minimum of the information we need. And so it's a challenge. Like with anything, you have to manage, you're managing people, personalities, relationships, all those things. And then you have to remember, there's also some turnover in that. So that is a never-ending job of managing the incentive, the drive, the push of having someone else execute your business plan at your asset. Because it's nice to think you're their only client, but that is never the case, right? So you have to know that as soon as they tell you the update on your asset, they're getting on the call and telling someone else the update on their asset. And what it becomes is who's the squeakiest wheel, right? right? And that's where you realize, do you... It, a long-term business plan isn't like, how do we become the squeakiest wheel? Right. <laughs> right. So, but we know that that is the game that you play right now. So the, again, because of our culture and how we build our team, uh, the person that does that on our team, Rob, he, he is uniquely qualified to not be a squeaky wheel and get all the attention. Yep. And that's a hard thing to do, right? So you got to build trust, rapport, relationships, all those things. And then when it isn't working, the hard thing with leasing is you got to know when to make a change because there sometimes it is just needing new blood, new momentum. And the brokerage world knows this. It's that's the game that everybody's playing and it's a hard bit it's a hard part of the business. And so I think the ones that are really successful are the ones that figure out how to do it themselves. Can I ask what would need to have happened for us to make a change? In terms of say that again, uh, what, what would what would have to have happened with a third party broker, their oh, performance for Got us it. to have decided it's time to move on? Yeah, no, no, low, low volume of updates. Right. So it's it's pretty obvious. So if you're having calls with a broker and you're not getting good attitude. <laughs> right. So if the response is not confidence, certainty or direction or guidance that needs to happen in order to get the space leased. And it's just another, yeah, still no update, still no tour. Yeah, I don't know what to tell you. That's a problem, right? Yep. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's the the brokerage or the partner is the issue because those can be great groups, but it, it's we're talking about individuals yep. that have to do the work. And so you got to pay close attention to people's attitude about the potential of executing your business plan. And you got to be really keen when you're being sold a bill of goods or you know being just told what you what they what you what they think you want to hear versus reality right so what we're always trying to listen for is what is reality we need to know we need to get $8 triple net on this we need at least in the next 30 days is that possible and we need the truth and so when we make that choice it's when that's obviously not what we're getting yep and we're going to get to tech in a second but speaking of attitude steve can you just describe 
What do we look for when we're hiring a new property manager? Attitude's critical, especially in the property management role, but describe what a great property manager would look like for us. Yeah. So great question. You know, for when, when I'm identifying a candidate, first thing is, you know, do they align with our core values? Are they resilient? Are they agile? Are they accountable? Are they driven? That's sort of the ante end of the game. If we've identified that our core values align, I'm looking for someone that is willing to ask questions. So very curious. I'm looking for someone that is willing to risk failure. I'm looking for someone that is willing to be inspected. And I'm looking for someone that has a top-notch attitude. If if we can identify that they meet our core values and they 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 want to learn and they're eager to learn and have a great attitude about learning, then we look at our culture index. So we have a tool and a process that we use that identifies candidates for specific job types and sort of their their personality traits. From a skill perspective or from a from, I guess from a technical perspective, most of our property managers didn't manage industrial assets prior to coming to FCP. They might have managed multifamily. They may have managed office. They've managed residential, but no industrial experience. Most of them didn't have yardy experience. But that sort of inner intangible stuff was jumping off the page. And they are, I, I mean, our team is, I'm extremely blessed. Our team is amazing. And example is most of the the PMs in Houston. Our, our, our Houston director, regional director, Sarah, done an amazing job assembling a team that didn't necessarily have all of the technical, but they had had the intangibles and, and, and they're crushing it. Yeah, I think the other way to say that is we hire the things you can't train. Right. And if you do that first, the stuff the you know, they have to have some skill. They have to have some experience, right? We that's that's a that's a given, but it's not so critical that they kn- they've done exactly what we're going to ask them to do because we have lots of tools, we have lots of resources, and we have great training and mentorship here internally that we can get people to be really great at the technical side, but they first have to be the right person. And so if you hire that first, what Steve and I have found through our careers is that if you just hyper focus on the right people, right, right bus or right person, right bus, right seat, old school mentality. The key is how do you do that? Right. And that's what we feel like at Fort Capital. We've gotten really good at is identifying that and being very, very strict internally to make sure that we follow that rule every single time we hire. And the more you do that, the better the team gets, the stronger the team gets. And you realize that you have more people that are more dedicated, more excited because those right people that come in with the right profile, right personality, right attitude, when they are given the chance to learn something new and, and the team, the the manager or the hiring person helps them learn that thing, they are more dedicated, more bought in, more excited about doing it in the future. And so, yeah, we've, I believe, and it's not different from property management than Fort Capital. It's all the same. We hired the same way across the entire company and knock on wood, it's been extremely successful. One popular question, and we've and we've hit on it in several of the answers, but talking about our quote unquote tech stack or, or how we use technology and property management, can we just speak to maybe to start maybe some of the tools or softwares that go into property management? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So when I think of tech, you know, my my mind immediately goes to FOS, right? That's where everything sort of starts with with us at Four Capital. That's our primary software that that literally all workflow goes through FOS. And through FOS, we're able to automate a ton of reoccurring processes, if you will. We worked really hard over the last couple of years 
there's like property management as an example. There's so many things that the property manager does on a monthly basis, every single month. And through FOS, we're able to automate those. So again, freeing up their time, helping them become more efficient. So FOS is, is first and foremost, number one. Obviously, we use Yardi from an accounting perspective. I don't think that's anything earth shattering, but I think the way in which that we use the data that we get from Yardi is significant and and probably a significant competitive advantage for us. So when we talk about all the dashboards that I've been referencing all day, all of those dashboards, not all, a, a lot of those dashboards, that 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 data is flowing through Yardi to the dashboard. And so being able to leverage that and use that for that, that I'm, I'm in the dashboards, I mean, daily, they're, they're, they're invaluable. And so, so, so we have the Yardi and, and, and then we have FOS and then we also use a software called Abstract CRE and that's a software in which, so you just mentioned, okay, we've got an acquisition coming up. It's a hundred tenants. Okay. We've got to abstract a hundred leases. Holy cow. Well, good news is we have this software that will literally abstract those hundred leases and all of that data again is stored in a dashboard and we can, and the property manager can very quickly pull that up at any given time and access the information right there. So again, efficiencies, sorry. Yeah. yeah. And I think the key to what Steve is saying is that whether it's, you know, using a the, the biggest accounting software that's out there, right? The key is, do you use that in a silo and then you have part of your team working in that only? And then how is that connected to everything else you're doing? And if you have all this communication and workflow, accountability, responsibility, all this stuff that happens within our internal system, how do you connect that so that all that accountability and responsibility and com communication and knowledge is all in one place? And that's what FOS does. We have a data warehouse built underneath FOS, which is really the the backbone of everything. It's really the the brain of which, which makes everything happen. Because as that stuff's coming in, it's getting sorted and ingested in a way where we can do whatever we want with it. And when Steve talks about dashboards, that's what's happening. That data warehouse is able to accumulate all sources of data, no matter where they come from, whether it's abstract, yardy, third-party leasing tenants, our own leasing. It doesn't matter where it comes from. We have a way to ingest that data almost always now, because thankful for technology just in general, in an automated way where there's not as much manual input to where we can do whatever we want with that data. And the more we compound that data, the the better view we have into what's actually happening. But what it really boils down to in FOS is that and from a tech stack, when he said all these processes and things are automated, when you have all that data that's flowing in from an accounting software or an abstract software, and it's in one place, and then you can tie that to a process of something you need someone to do, you can give that person the ability to get really good at their job, where otherwise you're asking a lot of people to do a lot of things in a lot of different places. And what ends up happening is they just don't do it. Well, I'll ask, I'll ask it, and, and you answered it, but I'll ask it a different way. We obviously, we only know about Fort, but we've had the luxury of being able to observe other companies and talk to other business owners. We talk about FOS and it being our central place of truth that all data flows into. Would you just describe from your opinion what it would be like to work at another company that doesn't have that, that has all the different softwares and just bring a little more meaning to um, what that doesn't provide the employee when data is siloed in other places of the company and where communication could be really stalled that that we don't have to deal with. Yeah, I mean, I can I, I really just know it from my own personal experience from working at what appeared to be a great company, but had very siloed data. And what ends up happening is that you just tend to focus on what you know. 
and you do what you can do with what you have access to. And so you have a lot of people trying to be do the best job they can, be the best they can, but they're very limited in the resources that they have. And even if they technically have access to those resources, if it's cumbersome to go get that information or to go get that data or to have it as a part of a comparison to what you do every day, it just starts to break down. And some people will do it and some people won't. So what you have is inconsistency across an organization about how things are viewed, how things are seen, how things are done. And so when you can tie all that together and you can, you don't make it so that people have to learn how to go get all this stuff information. You say, this is how it happens. Right. And you say, and by the way, don't even worry about it. You're going to get the information that's going to come right to you. And it's going to be very clear what you need to do. And if you need to know the data behind that, we're going to give you that as well. Here's your own dashboard that you can log into every day. And oh, by the way, you need to log into it every day because it's going to tell you how everything's performing in your world. And every job that you get assigned to you is going to be coming knowing that data or attached to that data. Right. And every action you take is going to continue to compound on that data. So when you say the word one source of truth, that's really what it is. You're giving people, you're taking out the entropy, which we've talked a lot about. You're taking about all that wasted time energy of remember, remind, follow up, right? All those things that you have to do as a company. And when you start getting to 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 100 people, right, which will be at very, before we know it, it's very difficult to try to get everybody to see the same thing or to be thinking the same way or to know how to perform at their best. And so I think by having that one source of truth, doesn't matter, data is going to come from a lot of places in the future. It already comes from a ton of places. We can't worry about where it's all going to come from because we want it all. We want as much as we can get. And, and the question we, is, what do you do? With and it? because we have the one source of truth, you can't at Fort, you really can't do your, you can't have like a folder on your desktop where you're just doing work there. That's, that's to you. The, the work has to go through yeah. the system for so, it to work. That's a great, I'm glad you brought that up. Cause so there's always things in a company that become like habit, right? We, we talk a lot about this habits become like the way that things happen, right? Somebody builds a skill or they have a knowledge, they build a skill, they turn it into a habit. If that habit is wrong or if it's bad, and, and it may not be bad to them, but it's bad in terms of what we just said, one source of truth. And that shows up in a company by things like somebody who just had a habit before they came to a place like Ford. And the way they tracked it is they just had a spreadsheet on their computer and they just feel comfortable to just update that and they just keep it on their computer. Well, what we've done is shown the team, starting at the leadership team, that that is devastating to a company that is going to rely on data. And so we set a, I sent this job out a long time ago, but it was basically saying, if you have a spreadsheet on your computer that you're updating on a weekly, monthly, daily, any basis, if you're updating it right now, a spreadsheet, you have to end that immediately. And we talked about how to help them do that, but it was just explaining to them that there is no value in that information living in your world. That information needs to live in a data database because we can then compare it. And even if it's just for them, I don't need it necessarily so that I have access to what they're trying to track. It is to show them that there's a better way to track that data, which will become more value to them in the future, and there's less chance for error. And so we've systematically gone through the company and tried to weed out all those things. And again, it goes back to culture. Now the the leadership and the executive team are fully bought in and they see the value through all the data that we have. To where now they're proactively going to their teams and going, no, 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 we can't do that, yeah. right? 
And so we're, we've made so much progress in that world. I, I would say 90% of everything we do now is done in the right way. Yep. The key is you just got to keep training, encouraging, incentivizing. And as long as you're giving value back to people, then they start to see that they won't want to do it the old way. They realize they're like, why would I do that? That's a total waste of time. I can just do it like this. One thing our technology has been able to allow us to do more efficiently is reforecast. And we're going into a market where cash management is even more critical than it's ever been. We're now reforecasting monthly, but we're also doing it in a way that's not cumbersome on the team. Can you just dive in a little bit about how reforecasting works, why we do it monthly, and then really what decisions that leads to for our property managers and for us? Yeah, reforecasting is a critical aspect of any real estate investment at all, ever. And I think what ends up happening is it becomes a, a secondary thought of like a catch up, right? So reforecasting typically becomes like, oh man, this is what happens. We need to check and see where, what to do next, right? So it's like a afterthought. So you're reactive, not proactive. So what we've done is we've kind of flipped that thought process the other way, 180 degrees and said, we need to make this 100% a proactive thought. So we have somebody internally, their whole job is to manage the the flow of information that first comes through accounting, right? So we have, I get what Steve was saying earlier, the, the biggest chance for money spend and savings is at the property management level because they have access to rent collection and cash spend, right? So we first get all that information in every month. That information flows right into Yardi, which then flows into specific dashboards, which then flows right into reforecasting models, right? So instead of it being a detached thought of reforecasting because it's an investment, we reforecast as a whole organization the every action that is taken at the property level. So that all that information comes in, the person on our team is designated to do that every single month proactively before we have to make a decision on what to do with the asset, whether it's distribution, draws, to spend money, CapEx, TI, that person is doing that proactively prior to going into the next month. And I think what what we found, because we were we felt like we were one of the best at it, but we were doing it reactively. So we would get to the end of every month or every quarter and we would update all the models and forecasts and say, oh, okay, this is where we are. Now this is where we need to go. Now we've been in a great market, so everything has been positive. And so sometimes it's hard to see how much better you could be when everything's been positive. But when you start doing that proactively instead of reactively and you're doing it ahead of time, what you end up doing is dialing in cash management to a level that you just know most people are not doing. They're not looking out 18 months and knowing exactly how many dollars to start reserving today to hit a future need 12 months from now. I'm saying to the penny. So you can still max distribute every single month as opposed to distributing, distributing, distributing every month and getting to a point in the future and going, oh man, we need to reserve more cash because we have this thing coming up. Right. You're, you're looking so far out and being proactive about it that your cash management becomes built into the system to where when you go into distributions every month to make the, to make the decision to distribute to investors, all everything has been taken into account on what needs to be considered for the next 18 months so that you have the maximum amount of cash that you're going to need, plus you can send out the maximum amount of cash. And we've built all that into our system so that it happens automatically so we don't have to think about it. And it's just a part of the process and how we get to every month's distribution meeting. I love it. 
Okay, we've talked about our property management team. The last couple of years, we've brought on third-party business. And some people ask, why would you take on third parties? What's been the reason that we've decided to do that? I think it was an opportunity to show other groups what what we can do. You know, we've, we've slowly but surely built this up to something that we're really, really proud of. And I know that the value that we provide for assets that we could also provide to other groups and other assets. And so, and, and additionally, it was just another way, again, going back to core, just another revenue generation stream. And and so far it's been, it's been great. And I was just going to say the data is also a huge component, not just for us, but for them, because otherwise they would not be able to track the data the way that we do because of our economies of scale. We can offer them a lot of value to for them to be able to see their assets a little bit more clearly and be on top of them a little better than the, maybe they could. And it also gives us the market insight into what's happening with their property so that we can make sure that we're sharing because remember our property managers are obviously helping advise them and they're not just using their data, they're using our data. So right. our property managers are helping their assets perform better based on what we're seeing and vice versa. So it becomes a win-win. And so when you can increase that economies of scale, it's just more data. And so it's more, it's more for all of us to make better decisions. So we currently third-party manage a million and a half square feet. We have a million that we're onboarding and and we have goals to go much beyond that. Just kind of describe what a great third-party client business would look like. What would be a good fit for us? Yeah, for sure. So our kind of guiding principle on teaming up with another client is A, we want to make sure obviously our values align, right? So we're we're like-minded individuals and then B, honest, open, clear, transparent communication and then see from an asset perspective, we're only, we only want to manage assets that we would want to own, right? So like if a multifamily group reached out to us and said, hey, we've got these 250 units, we'd love for you guys. We, the, the answer would be thank you, but no thank you. That's, that's, that's a nice way to put it. <laughs> so, no, but hell no. <laughs> so, so we just want to make sure that, that we are yeah, aligned again from, from a core values perspective and then from, from an asset perspective as well. Does size matter? Does geography matter? Certainly. Yeah. So geography is critical. We would only want to manage something that we actually had a team on the ground in place. So San Antonio, Houston, DFW area, obviously we'd love to manage more assets in in, in those cities. We have assets in Memphis, we have assets in Orlando, but we don't have a, a boots on the ground team in those areas. So we wouldn't, we wouldn't manage in those, in those locations yet. How do we communicate with third parties? So we've talked about how we want communicate third parties to communicate with us. Sometimes the third party doesn't even know how they need to be communicated to. Right. How, how do we communicate with them? So we have a standing weekly call with every client and that is just, just make sure we're all on the same page update from new leases that have come in, any move outs that have come in, CapEx spends, you name it. So that's typically an hour long meeting with each group that we manage for. And then, you know, a lot of it, it, it really just depends on the client. So I always try and reinforce to, to our team, to remember that you know, as we're third-party managing, we, we've got to make sure we got our customer hat on. We, 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 these are our customers. We've got to make sure we're going above and beyond. So, if one of them say that they like to be texted every Friday morning when you sign up for third-party management, there's certain things that you're signing up for, and so we've got to make sure that we're adv- advocating towards the customer. And and we have we have different clients. We we're we're our own client. If you had to just describe how a great client is set up to receive it from us. Meaning, you know, what's it like on their end? Are the best ones we work with, they have X set up in their office. They have the resources. They have a certain designated person. Like if somebody's listening to this thinking, I might want to work with four, what do I need to have on my end 
to be prepared? What would their team look like so that we're communicating really well? Yeah, great question. So they would have an individual that was typically it's an asset manager that's dedicated to the the FCP account. So that way all communication is going through one centralized person. It gets it can get really messy when the team is trying to get information from six different people. It's 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 time consuming, it's frustrating, it's disorganized. So a centralized asset manager and then the other thing would be knowing a lot of groups when you ask them, so, you know, what exactly are you looking for from your property management team? You know, obviously boots on the ground, but from an accounting perspective, what what do you envision and and how can we help? You get a lot of sort of deer in the headlights looks and like, well, I, I think we're going to do our own accounting. And then we have to define, well, what is accounting? And so I would say really critical is having a clear definition of the 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 financial reporting what you would like to see what you would would expect and and on the accounting side because accounting for some people might mean one thing but for others it means another thing so like cash racks who's going to do cash racks who's going to, or are we going to collect the rent and post it or are you guys going to do it so there's a lot of nuance there so having a very clear vision of the services that you would that you would like us to yeah perform. and I would just say the only thing I would add to that is that. When we talk a lot about this because every client does have their own need and some, like he said, want to do their own accounting and sometimes they want us to do the accounting. But I don't think you get the full value of what's possible at a property until you centralize everything because there is too many chances for communication breakdown, error, all those things, right? And so I would say that an ideal like the ideal customer or ideal partner for us on third-party management would be somebody that completely sees what we're doing for our own properties and says, I want that. And and it allows us to create what we do for ourselves, for them, including so they can get the reporting the same way, the dashboards the same way, so that we can show them how efficient a property can be run. If they And I'm not saying our way is the end-all be-all, but we know how to do it really well, the way that we do it. And if somebody allows us to manage their properties exactly the way we manage ours, almost always it's more efficient. And so you just answered, I think, my next question, which is some some people might ask, well, how do you manage ours differently than the way you manage yours? Is there any difference? Well, Steve and I talk a lot about this. We absolutely not. So we take an ownership mindset to everything they do. So Steve specifically, like everything is is treated at the same level of importance and urgency and care. What the third-party partner wants or needs is up to them, Yep. right? So that is the only difference. But what we think about and what we want to do is the same regardless. That's what I'm saying. So ideally, if we could do it exactly the way we do it would be perfect for us. But we understand that that's not always the case. And this is something I've been asked a bunch. I think you all have which again, I think is something that is so underrated and, and much harder to achieve consistently and proactively. Do we offer reforecasting for other groups? That's not typically something a property manager would offer. Well, that's a great example of something that if they allow us to do what we normally do, which is all the accounting, all the rent collection, all the booking, all the cam recs, if we do all that, 100%, it's already built into our system and how we do it. We would 100% be reforecasting for them because it's already built into the system. But when they control an aspect of that, we don't have the information to be able to do that. And so it's just an, that's a great example of where the value sometimes might be less for them, but that's a choice they're making, not because something we can't do. 
and it, this probably comes back to if they have the team already built that that we're able to work with, they probably have the portfolio size to, to match it. But is there a minimum requirement that that we want to see? I mean, it, I, I, yeah. it's really case by case, and it just depends on you know the asset and the square footage and the tenant count. I wouldn't say there's necessarily a minimum requirement. Most of the groups that that we currently work for have a pretty significant footprint, over a half million square feet or more. But certainly wouldn't not look at something because it was not, you know, a certain square footage. I think the, the scale of our capabilities and sort of what we bring to the table uh, sort of eliminates a certain size of client that might come to us. If they have 10,000 square foot building, we're way too much. We're way too big to, they don't need us, right? So I think just based on what we're offering, if we presented a, a, a plan to someone to manage their asset, it would be too much for a certain size building. So I think that just inherently weeds out sort of too small. And last question, if if a third party was thinking about working with us, how do they engage with us? What should they have prepared? Like, what does that look like from the day they call us to when they're onboarded? Yeah, more information, the better. So they 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 can reach out on on our website and, and inquire about us there. But the detail of type of building, square footage, number of tenants, year the property was built i mean literally as as much information as we can get initially the better because it'll it'll allows us to act quicker a lot of times what happens is we get reached out and there's a lot of back and forth of just fact finding of like hey well what about this oh let me get back to you or hey what about that oh well let me get back to you so the more information the better from a tenant perspective and a building perspective and assuming that people had their information in line how long would it take from first call to being able to start managing their properties? Great question. So there's two there's two scenarios. The first scenario is they are in the process of acquiring an asset. They don't quite own it yet, but they're going through the DD process. They're closing in 30 to 60 days and they are being proactive and they reach out to us. That In that scenario, we can start managing day one that they close, literally day one. The second scenario is an asset that they've already owned. They currently own it. Maybe it's with an existing property management group or not at all. That is a little bit heavier lift, especially if we're doing the accounting because we've got to get all of the financial information, all of that data uploaded into our system. And so that's going to be more of like a 60-day turnaround just from a onboarding perspective because of all the data that needs to go into the system. You just brought up an interesting point, a third party that's buying a deal. And we talked about how property management works with Fort when they're buying a deal, but how do we aid in those folks when they're buying deals? How do we participate in their decision-making process? Yeah, so 100%. We, one of the, I would say one of the benefits that we that we provide is we're the, the, the market level expert. So the areas and the cities that we're operating in and third-party managing in, we own lots of assets in those cities. So we really know the the, the vendor base, the, the what rates we typically think that, that can be had what things to look out for. In DFW, we know the soil's not great. So if you're buying an asset in DFW for the first time, you may want to get a structural engineer out there. And so able to really just lend our expertise because thanks to our deal team internally for it, I mean, we've gotten a ton of reps at property onboarding. And so it's, and, and the PM team's done an amazing job of leveraging that and being just there as sometimes just a, a sounding board too. Like, hey, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? Like, yes, absolutely. Do you have a quick like story or an example of when we were going through that process, like a certain thing that happened that maybe we helped them get a better deal or maybe not do the deal at all, or maybe create a better budget? Yeah. So one, 100%, this actually happened 
about a month ago, we were in Houston touring an asset for a client. They were set to close and I believe another 30 days or so. And as we're walking the property, it's myself and property manager, Kelly. Kelly's also the one that saved the money on the fire suppression. But as we're walking through the building, we noticed a sort of irregular hump in the foundation. And we just pulled the client to the side after the tour and was like, man, I would, I would look into that. That that's that's not right, and I would hate for you guys to close on this asset, and then you know, thirty days down the line, you've got a six-figure foundation repair bill headed your way. And sure enough, they engaged a structural consultant. There is a foundation issue, and the deal's dropped as of today. So that that's a massive win. I mean, obviously, I would have loved to have managed another asset, but I think that sort of value and transparency there, and us just giving our honest, positive feedback, saved a lot of headache for everyone. Yeah, I think that's a good example of everything that we do is has to be accretive to what we're doing. There's no need to go out and just get more business. So it really has to fit what we're already doing, has to fit our flywheel, and has to be a good decision. So when he's saying we give them good advice, it's the same advice we would give ourselves. We're not trying to just go get more property management business to just have more property management business. There's no value to us to create that headache for us internally. Okay, I'll wrap this one up on why do you think that there's a lot of third party, there's a lot of third party commercial management companies that won't even manage this stuff. It's for, for a myriad of reasons, but wh- why do you think they can't do it and, the, and we can? What are the reasons we commonly hear that third parties either won't do it, you know, maybe there's not enough fees in it or it's too much work, too many tenants, but why are we able to do it when most people in the industry say like it's something we don't want to participate in? I think first and foremost, it's our our flywheel. Our flywheel is is humming. And so in the cities that we have boots on the ground property managers, bringing on a new client in the space they're already very, very active in is relatively easy due to the efficiencies and the economies of scale that we've already achieved in our own portfolio. So if we had a third-party client call us today in DFW or Houston or San Antonio and said, hey, got this deal we're looking at buying, we'd love for you guys to manage it. It's, I mean, there's work involved to get it onboarded, obviously, but it's not this big, massive undertaking. And, you know, we, we, we've done it literally hundreds of times. So it's, it's pretty seamless. Yeah. And I think from a macro perspective, it, it's, it sounds like basic, but it's really not. The asset class has never been institutionalized, not, not at the, the, the specific buildings that we're buying. It has started to be since we've been in it and it has made a lot of progress. But even from a property management perspective, the institutions that are buying them and they hand them off to even large property management groups, they still manage them sort of not totally detached, but from afar, right? And so they they throw very little resource at it and they manage it through a very simplistic way because of the nature of the asset. But I think the biggest reason why it hasn't really made this transition to being more efficient or adding technology is simply because of the the segregated ownership of it or however you want to say that is there's been so much small ownership and old ownership of this asset class for decades that it's just been ran the same way it's always been ran and if you don't aggregate something and bring it into the 21st century like rent collection it'll just stay that way for a long time and i think when you look at this asset class, it's not sexy. And if you look at an old building, people think, oh, that's just going to keep getting worse and it eventually it'll be gone. I think that's how people think about it. And so they don't put the resources in it to actually make it work better. And I think there's just not been a lot of groups like us willing to take on the task. And so when you add in things like our flywheel, 
we're one of the few groups out there that said, we're going to take this and not just buy industrial real estate and manage it. We're going to do it different and better than anyone's ever done it. And that's including the groups that are already really great property managers at other asset classes. And we've hired some of those groups, like some of the best office asset property managers in the business to manage ours. And it's not that they don't do a good job. They just don't go above and beyond and think about how to take this asset class to another level. And that's what we're doing. We're trying to figure out how to take it to a new level so that it becomes seamless and very low entropy. Because when you do that, all the value trickles down to the asset. And I think that's where we're headed. Great property management is leasing buildings, keeping them well-occupied, building relationships with tenants, making sure the actual structure itself remains in, in good condition. And the thread throughout the entire conversation, I think we'll bring it home on this, is that we treat properties, whether they're our own or third parties, as if we're owners. Mm-hmm. And that's not just the three of us sitting around this table, that's everybody in our company. And so I think the the final question might be, how do we incentivize people to think like owners? And we've touched on it at key points, but let's kind of bring it home on this question. What are the incentives in place that make our team so onerous and dedicated to driving value to these assets? Yeah. So we, every, so not just property managers, every single team member at Fort Capital has a very specific, detailed, aligned incentive plan that essentially rewards them when Fort Capital does better and they go above and beyond, everyone wins. And so from a property management perspective, they're incentivized at the asset level. So if they, if, if they are collecting 100% of the rent and they're keeping expenses down and they're maintaining and building relationships and the tenant retention and just knocking it out of the park, that asset will be thriving and they will get to participate in those those bonuses. One other really unique thing that we do that our team, the feedback on this incentive program has been awesome. And that is after a year of employment at Fort, we allow uh, every team member to participate in the co-invest. So we're giving folks that would not normally get exposed to getting into commercial real estate deals and being able to invest that opportunity after one year. And so you want to talk about owner's mindset, like they truly are an owner in the deal. So they're participating in the deal that we're internally managing. So you talk about win-win scenarios. I've got a manager that has invested their hard-earned money, their own money in the deal. There's there's no better reward for us because we know that that they've got skin in the game. All right, guys, this has been awesome. Thank you for joining us. If you've listened to this and you're interested in learning more about what we have going on at Property Management, you can go to fcpmanagement.com. Uh, there's a form that you can fill out there and one of our team members will get in touch with you immediately, or you can learn more about us at fortcapitallp.com. So thanks again for joining me. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 